Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. You can find us at thenevadaindependent.com. Joined today by two of my reporters, Megan Messerly. Say hello, Megan. Hey, John. And Riley Snyder. Say hi, Riley. Hello, John. Thanks to both of you for coming. Another busy news week, as they all seem to be for us these days. The big news on Thursday, as we are recording this uh, podcast, is that the recall was submitted for the second petition on uh, Patricia Farley, the independent who caucused uh, with the Democrats. And what is the big news? Oh, everyone's looking at me. So it did not qualify. Um, This is part of an effort by Republicans. Again, we've talked about this many times on the podcast, but like there's not a lot of, I guess transparency is probably the best word in terms of who's funding this effort, who's trying to back it. So Senator Farley was one of the three targets. She was an interesting case because she was uh, obviously she's she's a Republican turned independent who caucused with Democrats. She would have been up for re-election. She decided not to run for re-election in 2018. Um, there was a lower threshold of signatures needed to recall someone. To recall someone in Nevada, you need a quarter of the voters who voted in that district during that election. So her uh, recall amount was like 7,300 signatures. The backers of that who had 90 days to collect the signatures only collected about a little bit more than 2,000. So that won't qualify. There won't be a special election. Senator Farley was very happy when I talked to her. She said she actually had rehearsed her talking points if it did qualify. So she was a little surprised that it didn't. Um, So that means uh, Democrats dodged a bolt on this one. Senator Joyce Woodhouse, who's a Democratic state senator, the recall backer submitted that paperwork earlier um, last Friday. The Secretary of State's office said that one did qualify. Democrats have this effort to try to disqualify signatures, which is a long convoluted process that maybe Megan can talk about. And then there's another recall signature due for State Senator Nicole Canizaro, who is again a Democrat. That'll be next week. So let, let's be clear on this. Um, they they submitted about two thousand signatures. They only they only, they needed uh, uh, three times that plus. So it's clear that they essentially gave up in that district at, at at some point, and are devoting the resources to the two Democratic senators that they really uh, they need to to, to to recall to try to take control uh, of of the Senate. And Riley, uh, before we get to Megan talking about some of the legal issues here, uh, you 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 mentioned that there's been little transparency here. We don't know who's funding it. They don't have to release that for for a little bit uh, on these, but we know who's behind this, do we not? Yes, we do. <laughs> I don't want to like legally uh, get myself in trouble. Well, over the anything. reason I asked you is because I wanted you to get in the legal trouble and not me, which oh, is you know, okay. well, editors are supposed to pass the buck. Well, I guess what I'm I getting have less at- money people can sue over basically. <laughs> yes, I, well, um, I, I, I guess um, uh, w- w- what I'm getting at here is that we know that that State Senate Minority Leader Michael Roberson has been intimately involved in this with his team. It's his field uh, operative Billy Rogers who has been collecting the signatures. His company advanced. Uh, Micro-targeting. Roberson has been down at the election uh, department uh, on on this. This is really an attempt. We should let people listening know, uh, even though they've come up with these reasons: sanctuary cities, tax increases, etc. The, the the Republicans cannot take control of the state senate next year in 2018 because all of the Democrats are in safe districts, right? Can yes. you talk about that without fear of being sued? I think I can. Okay. Um, so, yeah, in, in 2018, there's only a handful of uh, quote-unquote swing districts that are up. 
One of that is uh, Michael Roberson's state Senate seat in Henderson. Another one is Senator Patricia Farley's. She's not running for re-election, so that's an open seat. And another one is state Senator Becky Harris, who is a Republican, who's kind of considered endangered um, in Nevada, which is kind of a cool factoid. All assembly districts are nestled within state Senate districts. And the two state assembly districts in uh, Harris's district are both held by Democrats. So that does not pretend well for her. And those are basically it. So Republicans don't have a lot of options, which is part of the reason why they launched these recall efforts. Senator Michael Roberson has been an unabashed supporter of recalls. I think I can say that safely. Mm-hmm. He uh, said during Attorney General Adam Laxalt's event a few months ago that these recalls will make sure Republicans have control of the state Senate by Christmas. You know, even if the the, the other two need to qualify and, and um, go through and they need to have a special election for them to actually take control Right now, with Farley, Democrats have a 12 to 9 control in the state Senate. There's a lot at stake here. Like, they're not just doing this willy-nilly. There's a lot of questions about redistricting that come up. These are four-year terms in the state Senate as opposed to two-year terms. So it will have major impacts if they can qualify for a special election and can have those, especially in, like, a low turnout season, like a week or two before Christmas. Right. Who wants to go and turn out for an election dur- during the holiday season? Uh, so, Megan, uh, uh, Riley mentioned that there are legal efforts uh, going on. Uh, at least one is already public. There's been a federal lawsuit filed. But the Democrats, uh, even though, as Riley correctly points out, the Secretary of State essentially said that the Woodhouse recall has enough signatures, that's not completely clear yet, right? Right. Well, I'll let Riley talk about more of the, the lawsuit stuff because he's been following that more closely. But one of the things I will mention is yesterday, Democrats put out a statement Um, You know, they haven't wanted to reveal their hand too much as far as exactly what they're doing going through these signatures. But they've said that, you know, they found thousands of these signatures that are ineligible. So we assume that to mean, you know, people who either um, signed the petition and they've, you know, they're registered with a different party or they've, um, you know, moved out of the district or they weren't in the district when, you know, when the election was actually held. Um, You know, as people know, Nevada is a very transient state. So, you know, you need to find people who actually voted in the 2016 election who are from that district to get them to sign the petition. So so those are sort of the, the ineligible on their face ones. And they've also said that, you know, hundreds more, you know, feel like they were sort of duped into signing this for whatever reason um, or for whatever reason don't want to have their name on the petition anymore and are now coming forward. So it remains to be seen sort of what, what the final number is. You know, if, you know, Democrats have found more ineligibles um, going through the signatures themselves. So we're kind of waiting to see what comes out of all of that. And that could sort of come to fruition through the the legal side of things, which Riley's reported a little bit on Democrats challenging the recall process sort of um, on its face in in court. Well, well, I'll let Riley talk about the federal aspect, but but my understanding is that the Secretary of State's part is done, the Registrar of Voters' part is done, that the only way that Democrats can get and these, the, this ruling change now is to go to court and say, no, you're wrong, Secretary of State. These are not all qualified. And, and the process itself, by the way, we should tell people, is that the law says you take a 5% sample and then check that. And, and, and they extrapolated from that. And that's how they got uh, that it qualified. But now the Democrats essentially are doing some kind of forensic examination. As you say, they don't want to talk much about what they're doing. They would have to file a lawsuit, correct, over, over that? Right. Well, one of the one of the big things people keep saying with all of this is, you know, we've never really been through this before. There hasn't been something of this scale where you have, you know, such a strong effort, such a strong signature gathering effort. And then, you know, Democrats obviously have been gearing up now, you know, since August, since all this was announced um, to push back against it. So you've never had this sort of head to head situation of this magnitude. So I think there are a lot of questions about, you know, what is the Secretary of State supposed to do? What is the Clark County Registrar of Voters supposed to do? So I think there's some question about 
about, you know, once all, for instance, once all the signature removal documents of people are coming forward and signing these things, once all of those are, are turned in, you know, will there be some final, you know, receipt of that by the Secretary of State's office? So I think there's some some question about what can still be done on that side. But yeah, ultimately, the, the final remedy would be going to a court and saying, you know, hey, you know, in addition to the sort of, you know, broad challenges they, they've posed saying, you know, Nevada's, you know, recall laws have X, Y, and Z problems, you know, going to the court and saying, you know, we did our review and and we believe that they don't have the votes to make this or they don't have the signatures to, to recall this individual. Senator. Yeah, the significance here for people who are wondering, like, why is this important is, and Riley alluded to some of this, but there's never been a legislator recalled in the history of Nevada that, that, that we know of. There's been some local uh, recalls and very few of those have actually succeeded. Recalls are very difficult to get on as they should. We essentially have a no, you don't need a reason in the Constitution to recall anybody. A lot of states have that. In fact, the majority of the states don't address it. The ones that do generally have malfeasance or, or, or misfeasance in office or having committed a crime. But they, the Democrats, as you point out, really have been gearing up for a long time. This is the Republicans trying to get a, in a better position in going into the 2018 elections uh, because without these, they, as I said, they have no chance to take control. But Riley, they've even taken it a step further in, 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 in going to federal court, hiring a very prominent attorney uh, a nationally known attorney uh, who who was Hillary Clinton's counsel and has done a lot of stuff for the National uh, Democratic Party. And, and, and the spin coming out from the Republicans now is kind of ironic in the sense that they're accusing the Democrats on doing this of voter suppression. And you usually hear it the other way. What's going on there? Yeah. So Mark Elias, as you mentioned, was the general counsel for Hillary Clinton. He's been involved in basically every major Democratic legal challenge over the last 15 years. And he filed the suit alongside Bradley Schrager, who is the former general counsel of the Nevada Democratic Party, challenging basically Nevada's entire like law and framework on recalls. So there's a challenge on the First and Fourteenth Amendments, um, essentially arguing that people who voted for these state senators for four-year terms will have their um, sort of vote thrown away through a recall process. It's challenging it on the Voting Rights Act grounds that by holding a recall election without any like clear malfeasance by these people, the recall backers have only pointed towards like votes they've taken. They like they're not accused of like embezzling money or anything like that. That there's no real compelling state interest to hold a recall election, and that a recall election and it's sort of an off year for like such a far down ballot race, you know, prevents a, like a huge barrier to voting for people of color. So the the suit was filed on behalf of like five or six different community folks, um, but you know it's clearly Elias and Trigger that are, are driving the ship. So they filed this earlier in October. There hadn't been a lot of momentum. And then just this week, they filed uh, a motion for a preliminary injunction. Um, and they asked for a court to make a decision on this by the end of November. Their, their goal with this is to get a court to basically a federal court, not a state court, to block the elections from either being called or from going on. We've mentioned that the one for Woodhouse qualified the recall petition for that. If they do go forward with elections, it'll probably be in December or potentially January. I still haven't heard or, or seen anything from the state or the the, the county. I, I should mention that the suit was filed against state election officials and state or county election officials as opposed to the people backing the recalls. The county itself has responded to basically say, like, we're don't why are you blaming us? We're just the messenger, don't shoot us. Uh, it's just a ministerial function to run an election essentially by the state and the county officials. Uh, and, and so Joe Gloria, the registrar of voters today, in a, in a motion that you that you reported essentially said, you should dismiss this lawsuit. It has nothing to do with me for those reasons. Yeah. Was that today or was that yesterday? No, I don't know. Yesterday. yesterday, today, they all, they all run together for the hardworking <laughs> folks at The Independent. We do not sleep, folks. And we're here to do this podcast anyway because we love 
our podcast audience. Right, Riley? Yes. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Can you feel the love in the room, uh, podcast audience? So uh, just to wrap up the discussion of the recalls, we should know something you would think pretty soon on the Woodhouse recall. They're probably, if they file a lawsuit on that, it's got to be very soon, probably early uh, next week. We will know next week also if, if the Canizaro, uh, what the Canizaro numbers is. They need just under 15,000 signatures, just as they did. It's around the same number that they needed for, for, for Woodhouse. They're going to file that next week. Michael Roberson put out a statement uh, today to the Review Journal in which he essentially indicated it looks like they're going to have enough signatures. It's going to be close again. I'm sure the Democrats uh, will sue over that. And so the news we have for all Nevadans is we don't know yet whether you are going to have to uh, go to the polls to vote uh, in between your Christmas shopping, but it is uh, possible. There's a lot of other news, of course, uh, going on, including, Megan, uh, a new candidate for Congress uh, in, in the swing district in Nevada. What's going on there? Right. So we have a new candidate, uh, Michelle Mortensen, a former Channel 8 here in Las Vegas consumer reporter. She announced this week that she's running as a Republican in Congressional District 3. Um, as our listeners probably remember, there are already several candidates who have announced for that field, um, most prominently State Senator Scott Hammond, the proponent of school choice, and former um, Assemblywoman Victoria Seaman. They're sort of the the two big candidates. There's also Clark Count, former uh, chair of the Clark County Republican Party, Dave McKeon's in that race as well. And then an autism advocate, Linda Tashe, backed out shortly after the, the first financial reporting deadline was due. Um, so it's a pretty, pretty crowded field on the CD3 Republican primary side, not unlike what we saw uh, last cycle in 2016. We don't know that much about about Michelle. Um, she's, you know, been a reporter for nearly two decades um, in television news. She's known for for her consumer reporting on Channel Eight, like I mentioned, sort of reviewing products and you know helping people um, with various problems, whether it's a disability claim or, or something of the sort. And so, yeah. So now we have a we have a even more fun primary in the Congressional District Three. We we do know that she's conservative, and, and we do know that uh, she's going to probably try to uh, stake that out and turn even being maybe to the right of Victoria Seaman, if such a, a place exists. You think that place exists, Riley, to the right yep, of Victoria? and I live there every single day. <laughs> there <laughs> you go. <laughs> uh, but, but the other thing that I thought was interesting about Michelle Mortensen is that she essentially, uh, uh, right before she uh, announced, she retweeted a, a tweet from Mike Huckabee, the conservative firebrand on Twitter, talking about fake news. This is a member of the media, a former member. And then she announced by essentially saying she apparently threw up her arms in, in, at Channel 8 one day and said, I can't take the liberal media anymore, and that's why she's leaving to run for Congress. Kind of strange for a media person to attack the media, but that's what's going on. Right. I think that was one of the most striking things from her sort of announcement statement, which she posted on on Facebook. Um, it did say that she was, you know, fed, fed up with the liberal media, you know, and that's why she was going to Congress was was to take a stand. So I, I think there's, you know, some questions of, of what does that mean? You know, um, which, which you know, news does she take? Does she take exception to? There's also a, another thing, too. Um, she, she has talked a little bit about gun rights um, on her Facebook page, you know, saying that she she supports them and that they should be protected. So I, th I think we're starting to see some of the, the contours of some of her policy positions, though we, we still don't have a lot of information about where she stands on. Yeah, and, and it'll be interesting to see because none of those candidates really have much name recognition. She may have more name recognition than Scott Hammond. No one knows who their legislators are or Victoria Seaman. And people do uh, uh, watch those consumer uh, reports and, and they have a very favorable view. So it's going to be an interesting race. Susie Lee um, is, is the Democrat. She does not have any significant... 
uh, primary going on. Uh, other political news, interesting political uh, uh, slash legal news this week, Riley, that you covered is an interesting, uh, I, I guess the word is disagreement, dispute, I'm not sure, going on between the Attorney General, Adam Laxalt, and the mayor of Reno, uh, Hillary Sheevy. What's that about? Yeah, so I've read way too many legal filings this week. Um, <laughs> but a few weeks ago, I reported that uh, Hillary Sheevy, the mayor of Reno, was interested in considering filing a lawsuit on behalf of the city against opioid manufacturers. She was inspired by a few cities in Ohio that had taken legal action. She's talking to a, a Vegas trial attorney named Peter Weatherall, who yesterday went and presented to Reno City Council about some of the options they would have. And the, the city hasn't taken any uh, steps towards that yet. We found out this week that Attorney General Adam Laxalt, who is running for governor, contacted the mayor and, and essentially asked her to drop these efforts to, to have the suit. And the mayor was kind of confused. And, you know, Reno has been hit especially hard by the opioid crisis. The entire state has. But there's been issues there like uh, a, a prominent car dealership and a prominent family there was sort of busted for for having an opioid distribution ring. So the, the city is very keen to these. And the issue of opioid, you know, overprescription and overdoses so she didn't really have a, the most productive conversation with the attorney general. She sent him a letter, which we reported on yesterday, sort of outlining, like, please tell us where you have an issue. Why can't we be friends and work together on this? Today, the attorney general responded and sent a letter to uh, Shivi on official attorney general letterhead signed with the, the Bureau of Consumer Protection head, who that's a, a subdivision in the attorney general's office, saying that, you know, we respect what you're doing. We think you have the best intentions, but... If you do this, you could unintentionally, uh, unintentionally, you know, screw up our efforts. The AG has entered into this lawsuit with 40 other attorney generals, 40 other states, and they're involved in this year-long process against a handful of these pharma uh, or opioid manufacturers and, and distributors. They've served subpoenas. They're kind of using like this much broader tactic in going after them. The, the way they described it in the letter was kind of uh, similar to like the, the big tobacco settlement in the 1990s. So that's what they're focusing on. Their concern is that if uh, city of Reno enters into litigation by themselves with other cities, they could be kind of kept separate or it would kind of pit them against the state. They might have like a lawsuit going on while the state settles. And then like there would be a question of whether or not Reno gets those settlement funds. So, you know, it's been a strange little back and forth. Hillary is uh, elected nonpartisan. She is an actual nonpartisan. She endorsed Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. But I think it, it's more an issue of turf as opposed to, to political news. Obviously, anything with Laxalt is interesting because he's running for governor in, in 2018. So, you know, we'll see where, where this goes and what the city decides to do. Real quickly, you you listened or watched, I'm not sure which, to the council meeting when, when this uh, Peter Rutherwell made made the presentation. It was There wasn't an action item. It was just a presentation. I think he said that it's, the city's not going to be charged anything, that they would take a percentage, as these attorneys sometimes do, out of any settlement. That, that was gonna, Could you gauge the, 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 whether this was a Sheevy as, as a loan among the council folks and their reaction to the presentation? Was there any way to... Because they still have to vote on whether they go forward on this, right? So any sense where the votes were on it? It's hard to tell. There was some talk by council member David Bobzian about, you know, if we go forward with the settlement, we want to make sure that it goes to, you know, actually programs that will help the Reno opioid crisis and not into some political slush fund. That was one concern that was brought up. The, the Reno City Attorney Carl Hall has also brought up concerns with this that he kind of agrees with the attorney general that they might be like stepping on toes here and that the city certainly doesn't have the resources to go after you know, these national uh, opioid manufacturers, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. The, the mayor said that the attorney general's office has contacted other city council members about this and voiced their concerns. So, 
you know, we'll we'll see who has more juice, I guess, Hillary or Laxalt on the, the city council. It's really interesting, too, because you mentioned it's it's, it's maybe just about turf, maybe about attention. It's maybe real legal, legal issues at, at play here. It'll be interesting to watch that uh, play out. Uh, Megan, you reported on something that, that's going on this week um, and actually will be resolved by the time this podcast is actually live. And this is, uh, I believe it's the largest election in the history of the Culinary Union against its its biggest nemesis, Station Casinos. What's going on? Right. So for anyone who's who's been following this over the years, um, you know, the Culinary Union and Station Casinos have butted heads over the union's attempts to, to well, the workers' attempts to, to unionize and join the Culinary Union. There have been a lot of, you know, fiery statements sent back and forth over the years with lots of, you know, Culinary Union, you know, claiming that Station Casinos is getting in the way of unionization efforts and Station Casinos claiming that the Culinary Union is bullying workers and joining the union. So lots of lots of things thrown back and forth. And complaints on, on filed both with sides. the National Labor Relations Board as well. Yes. Yeah. The Culinary Union did file, I believe it was 88 complaints with right. the National Labor Relations Board. Anyway, so where we are today, currently there are two station casinos in Nevada that are unionized or that are in the process of, of establishing their first contract. And that's Boulder Station and Palace. <laughs> Station. Boulder Station had an election last year. Workers overwhelmingly voted to join the Culinary Union, so that, that sort of moved forward. Um, the one that, that was a little bit more contentious was at Palace Station, where um, workers actually narrowly defeated the vote to unionize, but the Culinary Union basically appealed to the National Labor Relations Board, you know, saying that um, you know, station casinos hadn't hadn't been fair during the election. Was was offering people certain you know incentives right ahead of the election that might have had an influence. And eventually, they reached a settlement. Station casinos did with the National Labor Relations Board that is allowing the workers to unionize. So right now, employees of Boulder Station and Palace Station are working on that first contract right now with the Culinary Union and with Station Casinos. Which brings us to what's happening this week, which is that the third Station Casino <laughs> is taking a vote to unionize. So this is Green Valley Ranch, the sort of upscale suburban casino in Henderson. There are 900 workers there that could potentially join the Culinary Union, which is way more than it was about 580 and 570 for Palace Station and Boulder Station. So, you know, many more workers. Um, It's a two-day vote overseen by the National Labor Relations Board. So it's a secret ballot vote. You know, workers come in, cast their ballots, and we should find out today's Thursday, so we'll find out late tonight what the result of that vote was and whether uh, the workers there did decide to join the culinary union. It's really something, too, to think about the three station casino properties after everything that's gone on. I mean, this has been decades uh, that they've been fighting. It, it's two days because of the number of workers, or it's just mandated they have to do it over two days. Yeah, it's two. It's been two days <coughs> in all the in all the different elections. I'm not sure if it's a National Labor Relations Board standard. I would assume so, but I actually don't know that. That makes sense. Okay, so we we will know by the time this. Uh, Podcast goes live. All right, a couple quick hits, uh, Riley, on things you've been you were working on uh, this week. Our, our, one of our favorite stories: the the Raiders Stadium, the Stadium Authority uh, uh, meeting today uh, on Thursday, and there's some concerns. And and you wrote about this about the Republican tax bill in the stadium. What is that about? Yeah. So uh, our colleague and friend Jackie Valley is at the Raiders Stadium Authority meeting right now. So go to the NevadaIndependent.com for her full debrief on what happened there. Well done, Riley. Uh, Always got to get the plug in. Uh, But earlier this week, I wrote a story, and we had picked up on this last week, but I kind of did a deeper dive on Monday into this provision in the the House Republican tax bill. As people probably are aware, congressional Republicans are trying to overhaul the tax code and give a lot of people tax breaks. Part of the change in the tax code has to do with being able to issue municipal bonds 
that are tax-free for professional uh, stadiums that are used for sports. The Joint Committee on Taxation thinks this will save about $200 million in revenue over a decade. It actually presents a really big issue for you know Clark County because we were building a stadium for the Raiders. And whether or not these bonds are tax-exempt or not will lead to a Basically, it was agreed between Steve Hill, who's the head of the stadium authority meeting, and Steve Sisolak, the head of the Clark County Commission and someone who's really plugged into all of this stuff, that if this provision ends up in a tax overhaul bill that's signed into law, Nevada won't be able to raise the $750 million it kind of promised to put forward towards the stadium construction. It cost $1.9 billion. The Raiders are covering the rest through themselves in a loan from Bank of America. The $750 million figure has always been thrown around as like, oh, we're spending $750 million on the stadium. What's actually in the bill is that we're only going to spend a certain percentage of room tax revenue over a certain amount of time, and it will go up to but won't exceed $750 million. So there's a concern that when they do this bonding process, which will be sometime next year, if this tax bill is in law, that they uh, won't be able to get that full $750 million. That's an extra maybe 10, maybe 15, maybe 20 million. There's a lot of like different assumptions that are going on. No one can tell the future in bond markets like six months out. So we don't know what the, the difference will be, but that's you know more money that someone is going to have to pay to construct the stadium. Maybe Derek Carr will just take a pay cut to, to, to help pay for it. Uh, has anyone suggested that yet? Uh, I don't know if they have. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm on the ground floor of that one. Real quickly, uh, O'Reilly, uh, you also had a, a piece in... in, in uh, today, I believe, in The Independent, about this interesting uh, solar uh, facility that Apple, which most people in southern Nevada may not even know, uh, is, is, is making a, 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 some inroads in this state up north, and NV Energy. What's going on there? Yeah, so Apple, I like how you said people here don't know. It's the big company that makes iPhones. I think most <laughs> Nevadans are aware. I didn't mean that people don't know what <laughs> Apple is. I meant that they didn't know that they had a presence in Reno. I'm just kidding. Um, so Apple has... Uh, Data center facilities all throughout northern Nevada, they announced earlier this year they're going to spend a billion dollars to keep expanding these data center facilities throughout the state. We haven't gotten a lot of information on what their plans are, but Envy Energy announced this week that they will be entering into a contract with Apple and with this private solar farm out in northern Nevada. It's about 50 megawatts to provide basically exclusive solar-powered energy for expanded operations. Apple was very cautious to like not give away too many of their plans, but they did say their energy needs would go up by about 120% between now and I think 2021. It's a power purchase agreement, so that means that there's like a lot of legal moving parts. Neither Envy Energy or Apple will own the, the farm uh, or the solar farm. Um, it still needs to be approved by the Public Utilities Commission, which could take several months. But it is interesting to me, just in the face of the Energy Choice Initiative, this ballot question that would totally restructure Nevada's energy market that I've talked about way too much on this podcast. <laughs> Envy Energy already has $7.3 billion worth of power purchase agreements that it will have to unload if this does pass uh, by the end of 2023. And this is, again, another long-term contract they're entering into. There are provisions in the contract, because I'm a big loser. I read all 240 pages in the docket and the initial we filing. We appreciate it. Someone has to. And there are opt-out provisions for Apple. It can like transfer the contract to another provider and continue to receive the benefits it does. Uh, but that's one of the things that you know is always going to be on the, the mind of the PUC and on any energy-generating contracts Envy Energy gets into. The PUC rejected a request from the utility to purchase this power station in Arizona last year or earlier this, earlier this year in February because of question three specifically and the uncertainty over that. So, you know, interested to see if that will come up. Uh, power purchase agreements are very different than actually buying like a, you know, already built uh, coal or natural gas plant. 
But yeah, it's, you know, energy choice kind of like is slowly creeping into many, many things. And it's just another one of, one of them. It's going to be a big deal. I think you're going to, I mean, you covered energy uh, uh, spectacularly throughout this year, Riley. But I think you're going to have almost a story a day uh, next year. There's going to be a lot uh, going on in this. Make sure you check out Riley's reporting on that at NevadaIndependent.com. All right, real quickly, guys, let's talk about what you're working on. Megan, you have uh, um, a relatively brief story for you by meaning <laughs> it's only about 3,000 words uh, on, on a very actually interesting. I, I, I learned a lot in reading this story. Tell, give us just the outline. Don't give too much away on uh, what this story is about. Right, yeah. So there's this uh Federal federal grant program called the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program that provides funds um, in both Southern and Northern Nevada to help educate kids about you know how to not get pregnant, how to not get STIs, how to avoid HIV, things of that nature. And they found out suddenly this summer that that grant funding they had expected it would be five years would be cut off after three years, and now they're sort of scrambling to figure out what comes next and how they're going to continue providing all this education to kids here in Nevada. So it's really an interesting. Yeah. piece and it's going to be of concern to I think a lot of parents uh, and, and teachers and kids. Riley, what are you working on? Um, absolutely. Uh, I have <laughs> a story of, that's actually the reason I was late here to the podcast recording today to be in full transparency is I was talking to two analysts with the Public Utilities Commission who have been studying Nevada's attempt to deregulate its energy market in the late 1990s. This sounds kind of boring, but it's actually really interesting because everything in Nevada energy world kind of came out of this like four to five year process where we wanted to deregulate. It was done through a legislative process. And then we decided like, whoa, we shouldn't do this when California's energy market just totally collapsed and we had the rolling blackouts and everything everyone remembers from the early 2000s. So Everything from RPS to the Bureau of Consumer Protection to all of these various things that are still used and still sort of shape Nevada's energy market were in place during this time. There's like a lot of history lessons there, but there's a lot of like applicability to what, you know, state policymakers are doing now because it turns out like setting up an entirely new energy market is like really, really complicated. And so if we had done it before... Um, or at least on some of the research, some of these dockets that these people are looking into are like 20,000 pages, and they deal with like one aspect of this, you know, so much the better, because, you know, no need to reinvent the wheel if they already spent four years trying to figure this stuff out. That's really actually going to be very interesting, and uh, uh, your enthusiasm for energy is coming across. I don't know where it came from. In, 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 in this podcast, I'd really like uh, uh, to spend another half an hour, an hour, repeating our discussion internally uh, at the Indy uh, yesterday about uh, pairing up Nevada politicians with Game of Thrones characters, uh, which I'm sure would get a lot more uh, uh, reaction than what we talked about today. But we may save that uh, for, for, for another day. But trust me, it was very stimulating. Anybody who's listening who wants to give us suggestions uh, for Game of Thrones characters and Nevada politicians, you can uh, send them in. Megan and Riley, thanks uh, for coming on, on the podcast uh, this week. Thanks to everybody uh, for listening. It's all we have time for this week. We want to know, though, what you think. Uh, we want your criticism, ideas, even praise. If you can think of some, email us at ideas at the nvnd.com and check out the site. I'll give you the, the, the URL again. It's the nevadaindependent.com. You can also go on iTunes and subscribe. You can rate us. We're also on Google Play, and we're going to be on every possible platform as soon as Riley figures out what every possible platform there is on the internet. Uh, you, can, uh, you can find us now, as I said, uh, on Google Play and, and iTunes. There'll be a lot more. I also want to thank our great hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV for making this podcast possible. And as always, many thanks to the man who makes sure this goes live within the next 24 hours or so, Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer, who makes us all sound... Podcast Smooth. Podcast smooth.
Wow, that gets better every week. I love it. Someday my voice will actually be listenable, too. I'm John Ralston. I'm the editor of Nevada Independent. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll see you next week. Less money people can sue over, basically. (laughs) Can you feel feel the love in the room, uh, podcast audience? I don't know where it came from. (laughs)